And I also made a list of things to do after we we would take ownership of the property. So I just documented everything. I didn't want to be back in this situation for our next purchase. And I didn't want to be back in the situation after we had taken over this property. So I tried to be a little bit more proactive. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with our returning guest, Stephanie, young investor. And this is part five of our mini series um, as uh, Stephanie and her partner go through the process of closing on, I guess, their first like real purpose investment property. So Stephanie, you want to uh, just give us two a two-line introduction? Yeah. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me back. So we just closed on our first multiplex, first real investment, like Terry said. And I just wanted to outline the emotions, the roller coaster, um, what we learned from this process, and hopefully let this be a bit of a guiding light for those who are thinking of doing the same thing. And I want to be able to provide that motivation because it is a tough process, but a rewarding one. So I think everyone should be able to experience it as well. Awesome. So today we're going to talk about um, the due diligence process and everything that is sandwiched between getting an accepted offer and showing up at the notary with your down payment check to sign as the owner of the building. So let me ask you first, so, you know, like in in episode four, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, finding deals, um, making offers, uh, doing some of the underwriting, which is like kind of the financial modeling. Let's start with signing the offer. So, you know, how was that process for you? You got, you know, you guys put in an offer, it got accepted. And then how did you feel? What what happened the day after? Right. Initially, a lot of excitement. I mean, you get we had underwritten this property. We found that the numbers worked. It was the only one out of, let's say, 100 that we had analyzed. So we were really excited we had to negotiate a little bit on the price, but that we'll get into a little bit later. Um, I mean, it's more like what you want to express, Stephanie. So like, you know, you, you, I'm assuming because for me, this process is, you know, almost 20 years in the past when I when I, mm-hmm. I did my first offer and signed on my first building. So like, I don't remember what it was like. OK, now all of a sudden I have this live offer. Like, how does that feel? What what was that like for you? Yeah. Like I said, it was exciting. Um a little bit nerve-wracking. You don't really know what you don't know when you're starting out. There's like uncertainty, just a little bit of anxiety too, because you don't know what the process is going to be like. We did go in at asking and then we had done a walkthrough and discovered a few things about the building that changed the deal dramatically because we found out that there was a unit that might not be legally a unit. We went to the city to double check this and they confirmed that it wasn't a unit. So now the deal changes and Michael and I, my partner, we were about to jump out of this because like, this is, the numbers don't make sense now. And now we're only buying four units. How does this work? Um, so we went back a little bit back and forward with the seller um, trying to negotiate on the price. We did have a plan in place that would still work in our favor, but we don't want to let the other party know about that. Yeah, so that part I think was a little bit nerve wracking just because you don't really know what they're going to say. You still want the deal. When we go into this, you're supposed to take all emotions out of it. But I think we were still, I don't know if we still had some emotions tied to this because we were excited that this was our first deal. And 
like the thought of going back out there and trying to hunt for another deal, it seemed a little bit discouraging because it was so hard to find this one. So we really wanted to make it work. But yeah, we pushed through that. We finally decided on um, a price. We had done the inspection. Everything kind of came out to what we had expected. And then after that, we just figured that we were done and that we would just wait until we signed at the notary. But like I said, you don't know what you don't know when you're starting out. I had never done this before for an investment property. And I just felt like we were always lagging behind a little bit. So let's say for finding a notary, I didn't realize that I needed a notary when I did until agents started reaching out to me. The bank started reaching out to me there. Everyone wanted the name of the notary that we were going to be working with. So we rushed, we shopped around for some quotes. We rushed to get someone locked in. We gave that information and okay, we checked that part off our list. The next thing that happened was, oh, insurance. So let's say a few days before signing, the notary was like, oh, we need you to lock in your insurance. We had already called a few people for a quote just back when we were analyzing numbers. But now again, we're rushing. We're in the exact same situation where we needed to find an, um, an insurance policy that we can present to the notary. And again, we're rushing, felt like we were always lagging behind. Another thing that kind of set us back that we were a little bit stressed about as well was the down payment. So we knew we had the money, but I guess I never actually thought through the um, like the steps involved in that because I had, like I said, we had the money. It was just in separate accounts. So we didn't account for the time of transferring all like all that money from our B accounts to our primary account. And that took maybe like three to four days for each transaction. And we were lining it up and we're like, I don't think we'll have this money for the date that we're supposed to sign. So I called Terry, I called the notary and everyone ended up reassuring me that it's okay. You can have like a bank draft from each of your different accounts as long as it all sums to the down payment that you had to do. So I don't know. I just didn't like this feeling of uncertainty. Things were out of my control. I didn't know what I didn't know. And just this general anxious feeling of just like not being well prepared. And people who know me know that I like to be prepared. So at this point, I was like, this is not happening again. I started documenting everything from this process from even just going back to phase one as the books that we read to inform ourselves all the way to the timelines um, leading up to the signing date and just try to plan at that point as much as possible. Um, I had made lists of everything that we had to do leading up to the notary. We'd made lists as of our signing date. So let's say like calling Hydro, putting everything in our name for all the vacant units, calling the city for residential and school taxes. And I also made a list of things to do after we we would take ownership of the property. So I just documented everything. I didn't want to be back in this situation for our next purchase. And I didn't want to be back in the situation after we had taken over this property. Um, so I tried to be a little bit more proactive as of that point. And on top of all that uncertainty and feeling like I wasn't well prepared, um, there was that anxiety a little bit because I didn't know what to expect after we would take over. And these were just the thoughts that were going through my head. Um, what I did do that helped a lot was just removing all the extra noise in my life so that I can focus on what was really important. So I would go for extra walks. I made a playlist that excluded all the songs that had like a, a lower, slower beat or 
a melancholy tune. Everything that was positive. I muted Facebook groups that maybe triggered certain emotions. I was just trying to be as aware as possible about my emotions and managing those to the best of my ability because at this point it was just a lot of new steps that I wasn't aware of and I knew I was going to be facing a lot of new challenges once we took over ownership. And something else that really helped going back to networking is that during this process of not knowing what I don't know and trying to dig through like getting answers to those things that I didn't know, um, I reached out to some of the friends that I made in the networking group. They were able to provide us with resources. So let's say how to manage um, the tenants, how to manage the bills that we would eventually have to do renovations on the property and just hear stories that they had gone through and trying to relate that to my own experience. So I don't know, that's in summary, kind of the emotional roller coaster that happened during that phase before we took on ownership and a little bit what I did to m- mitigate those feelings. Uh-huh. Okay. So I think what I what I want to do with that is I want to just like break this down like into, uh, you know, kind of process steps, because I think like one of the the things that creates anxiety is when you don't know and then you realize because some thing pops into your field of vision that makes you realize, oh, shoot, I didn't know about this. And now I'm scrambling yeah. and I'm like not in the right place. Yeah. with it. So um, let's separate the process into kind of two phases. So the first phase is everything that's like called due diligence. All right. Yeah. So like people who are like familiar at varying degrees with um, like a real estate transaction, the due diligence process lasts probably anywhere from two to three weeks in like a smaller um, residential purchase, like a residential, you know, four, five, six unit um, place. So typically you get the accepted offer. Then you'll do a walkthrough of all the units if you haven't done a walkthrough yet. That is then followed by an inspection. You will examine the documents. So it leases, certi- certificate of location, and any other relevant documents to the transaction. And then you have to provide your acceptance of financing. So those are sort of the big lines and there are like separate times timelines on that usually like in terms of process wise what's front loaded is the visit of the place and the documents so you end up examining that um then afterwards you do the inspection probably like seven to ten days after you get the accepted offer and then the financing comes some days after that um now in your specific transaction um there were like a few curveballs. And I want to just like take a little bit of time to to kind of flag the curveballs because I think they were pretty decent curveballs. So like the first thing is the documents were a mess. Um, so like once, you know, you guys started examining that, it came to light that the leases had not been done necessarily properly. Uh, some of the tenants hadn't signed the right things. And so then that kind of needed to be cleaned up. So that was, I think, you know, the first thing. Then the next thing, was just tell me a little bit about what happened with the illegal suite because I mean that's a pretty big curveball like you go in there you think you're buying a five five plex and then in the due diligence process what emerges is that it's actually really a four plex that's been used as a five plex but it's not legally really a five plex so like how did that come to light and what were your feelings what made you decide to go ahead despite the fact that like that's a major curveball right so yeah that was we weren't expecting that. So we did our walkthrough and the upstairs unit seemed fine. And we ended the tour with the basement and it was almost scary down there. People were living in there and we found out that there was you no know, heating for the basement, that there were drop ceilings, meaning that the level above it wasn't protected for um, 
fireproofing. The windows in the bedrooms were small, and for it to be considered um, its own unit, they typically have to be one meter by one meter. So there were just a few red flags that triggered um, some suspicion. And before we did anything else and after the visit, we went straight to the city. We told them, like, this is the building we're planning on buying. What What's it zoned for? What does it say in the file? Was there any like request to turn it into, I don't know, just like what was the history of the building? And they told us that it was zoned for a fourplex, but in the system it said it was a fiveplex. So we were just a little bit confused. And yeah, they basically confirmed that it was illegally a fiveplex. And at that point, <laughs> we were ready to back out because like I said, the numbers didn't make sense. If it were a fourplex, that's only four streams of revenue instead of the five that we had originally planned. And we spoke to Terry and Terry had this great idea of maybe doing a master lease between the basement and the unit that was attached to it. So the main floor unit has stairs on the inside of the building that lead to the basement unit. So instead of having two separate units, it would be considered one unit, but it would two people would share the lease under one master lease. A little bit like the concept of uh, student housing, how there's usually one lease and multiple students are on one one lease. Again, like you said, we were served a curveball. We didn't know what to do. We were ready to back out and had this great solution. So up and down again um, and just trying to manage that. And yeah, so we ended up figuring out that the solution that we did have was good enough to move forward with and head to the next stage of the due diligence process. Mm -hmm. And uh, you guys were able to also get a significant price reduction of to the tune of like almost 10% of the sale price because of this. Um, which ultimately, and you're kind of like playing on two fields at the same time, right? Because you found a way to mitigate the revenue problem, which is to either, you know, rent that unit as one large unit or to like have two entities that are on a master lease. So you get around the zoning problem. Um, so basically, you're not really going to take a revenue hit. You're going to solve the conformity problem. And at the same time, you get a big price reduction. So like it was ultimately, you managed to find like a win-win-win solution that allowed you to move forward in the deal at terms that are advantageous to you. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how can you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Right. And I think this actually ties in with what we were talking about in one of the previous episodes is that you kind of have to make the deals yourself. You have to be creative. So just on paper, it didn't make sense. And then you come up with this idea and suddenly the game changes. You just had to be a little bit creative. What can you do to make the situation work? And I'm sure a lot of people work, would have worked, walked out on on the deal. But yeah, I'm glad we had you in our court to help us out with that <laughs> because we probably would have been those walking out. But it's definitely encouraged us to take a bad situation and kind of turn it around and really work at finding a solution. Yeah, and create the deal because... Yeah. Like basically, you know, like if you're investing in larger markets nowadays, yeah, like things are kind of overpriced. And if, you, if you're going to make something make sense, it's because you have a solution or you have a business model or you have an angle 
that somebody else is not going to take. You're willing to take on a headache that somebody else is not willing to take on. And so, you know, good for you for finding that angle and then for doing the due diligence, like in a responsible way of checking with the city, checking with the bank and discovering really like, you know, mapping out what does this mean for me? Like, what does this mean for me in terms of my financing? What are what kind of risks am I taking? Um, what am I taking on? Because, you know, if a, a, a fiveplex it has one price per unit, a fourplex will have a different price per unit. And so there's also, um, you know, a question of revenue streams, but there's also like, what are you actually buying? And then the fact that you like will eventually receive financial uh, compensation for cleaning up a problem and addressing something um, and then selling it in the way that it's supposed to actually be functioning, right? So like cleaning up a mess that someone else is not willing to take on is going to have financial rewards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The property um, managed properties. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And okay, so let's like now move to uh, beyond the due diligence process. So like basically the due diligence process ends when your conditions are satisfied in the offer process and your offer becomes final. And then usually uh, what happens is that you will have a certain delay, maybe 30 days between the time that all the conditions in your offer are satisfied and the time, the delay with which you have to go to the notary. And it's quite common, like as Stephanie said, with her experience to, for people to think, OK, my offer's finished. Now I just sit back and wait to go to the notary and sign. So <laughs> that's, like, that's exactly what we thought. And we're like, hey, yeah. we're good. We're coasting for the next 30 days. Um, and yeah, so, listen. no, you're not coasting. There are certain things that you <laughs> that you still have to do. So the first thing is you have to lock in the notary. Um, now, some agents can provide you, like sometimes the broker will provide you with a reference for a notary sometimes, but the burden ultimately is on you, the buyer, to make sure that you have the notary, that they are able to receive you within the delays that you, because you're, you will have a, a delay within which you have to do the transaction. So the notary has to be able to take your file they have to have a price that works for you um, and they have to have like, you know, a level of expertise and knowledge on that particular kind of product. So so, you know, that's that's the first thing. The minute like you start to see that your offer is going to go through, you need to have produce that name of the notary. And that if you if you're not going to go with the person that your agent recommends, because probably they'll recommend someone, you need to then get off the on the phone and lock somebody in and then provide the broker and the bank with that information. So that's number one. Number two, as Stephanie mentioned, insurance. So you actually can't close on a property without having it properly insured and providing proof of insurance to the notary. Now, the right way to go through that due diligence process with obtaining insurance is to get multiple quotes and to make sure you're comparing apples to apples. Because very often, if you have, like, let's say, a direct insurer like, like Desjardins versus someone who you need to work with through a broker like Intact, there will be pretty different deals and you need to leave yourself enough time to understand what is each insurer offering you? Will they even take you? Because some insurers won't take you unless they have your principal residence. Do you have insurance on your principal residence if you're a tenant? Like it takes a little while to kind of map that out and then make sure you're getting the best deal in terms of price, but also the best insurance for your particular property. And and I'll give you I'll give you an example. I actually just recently purchased a property and I had two quotes. I had one from Desjardins, which is a direct insurer, which was actually fairly more expensive than a quote from Intact, which is you go through a broker. There's almost a thousand dollars difference in the in the in the price of insurance. And I was all set to go with Intact until reading in the fine print, I see that um, because of you know certain factors related to the building, Intact excluded any um, water damage coming from um, 
sewer backup. And at this time, we are now starting to have tornadoes here. I have a finished basement in the building. And I'm thinking, what am I really insuring here? So, you know, yeah, sure, the price looks like it's attractive, but at the same time, make sure, um, you know, what the insurance is actually covering. And I ended up taking the more expensive insurance because it was just the better product for this specific building. So mm-hmm. all that to say, give yourselves enough time to really understand the insurance market and make sure that you're getting the best deal possible to give you the type of insurance you need. So that leave a week, you know, to make those phone calls. And then as far as the financing, it's not just obtaining a letter from the bank that says, okay, we are now going to lend you, you know, 80% of the sale price. There is also the burden on you to make sure that the funds can be transferred in the appropriate amount of time. And, you know, again, I'm going to give you an example. Like I've I've seen, uh, you know, foreign clients who have to have money sent over, let's say from Europe. So they have a money in euros and then they need to have a certain amount of time to have that money like wired to Canada. And then when you're wiring large amounts of funds, sometimes there are also specific checks um, and delays that banks will have. And so again, don't leave yourself, you know, 24 hours to try to get all your money to the right place. Um, Just, you know, once you start seeing that your offer is going to be accepted and it's going to go through, just make sure that you understand the banking ecosystem in which you're dealing with that is going to have enough time. If you can do bank drafts from Canadian institutions, like Stephanie said, you can do multiple bank drafts to the same notary or multiple transfers from different bank accounts to the notaries and trust accounts. So that can work out nicely, but you just need to make sure that, you know, your person at the bank is picking up the phone because not all institutions react with the same speed. And uh, if you have money that has to go across borders or has to be converted from American dollars or euros or, or whatever it has to come in through, you have to leave enough time for IBAN and SWIFT to communicate with each other and like all those fun things of international banking. Anything I'm leaving out? Um, no, those were the three main points that we felt like we were lagging behind and trying to catch up at the last minute. But for insurance and notary, we did shop around. Like you said, we got quotes from different people. And I would say insurance, yeah, there weren't many insurance companies to call. I feel like two or three is enough to get a good idea. For notaries, we did call uh, probably 10 because they really varied out. They varied a lot. And they were offering different things. Some were virtual, some weren't. And so, yeah, that was something else that we had learned is that not every um, step of the process requires the same amount of phone calls, I guess you can say. Yeah. 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 Um, one other thing that I think maybe you didn't mention um, that I feel like was relevant in your case and actually comes up in, in maybe 50% of transactions is as you're in the final approach to the notary, like the notary process. Um, There's this thing of what state are you taking over the property in? And especially with rental property, if your last visit was 30 days before the notary, like 30 days is a long time depending on what's going on. And like you guys ended up signing around July 1st. My most recent transaction was also signed around July 1st, which means people are moving. There's a certain amount of instability. Now, before Stephanie tells us about that experience, I'm just going to make a quick mention that you know, with a fully rented property, not a bad idea to plan that, you know, 24 to 48 hours before you go to the notary, um, go visit. You know, if it, the best obviously is to go into some of the units and, and just make sure that everything is exactly how it was when you visited it. But like definitely drive by, look at the outside of the property, go into the basement. If there's any common areas, go into the common areas because once you've taken possession 
And and then maybe you don't go from the notary directly to the building to see what kind of a state it's in. If there's like some time lags, it's that can then be very difficult to prove. Like, was that leak there before I signed? Was that garbage there before I signed? Um, so, Stephanie, why don't you tell us a little bit about exactly what yeah. happened with this in your transaction so people can profit from that experience? Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, I forgot about that headache. Um, so when we took over put the offer on the building, it was under the condition that the basement unit was going to be vacant. There was a tenant there who had been evicted and she had signed. We had got her to sign the right paper stating that on July 1st she was going to leave. So before we took ownership, we had to confirm that she actually left. And it's a good thing we did because apparently she was still in the unit, I guess, waiting for someone to actually notice that she was there. And all her stuff was still in the unit. She hadn't made any progress towards moving out. So the seller's agent ended up having to deal with that. And he took out her stuff from the unit himself. But in doing so, he created a mess in the backyard. He had put all her personal belongings, and I mean all her personal belongings, mattresses, fridge, microwave, everything was all in the backyard. So, well, what we ended up doing was telling the notary about this issue and having them put aside a certain amount of money in hold or in trust. And we said we would clean up that mess, but we would need the money to handle it once we took ownership. And there was another issue while doing that walkthrough right before we had taken ownership. And so there was originally a leak from the second floor onto the main floor in the bathroom. And we had agreed that the seller would fix that up before we had taken ownership. And coincidentally, my partner Michael was there while they were doing that fix. And I don't know, they just weren't doing a good job. There was clearly rotting wood and they were just going to apply a piece of chip rock right above it. And yeah, they just weren't taking the right precautions. So we said, you know what, stop right now. I'd rather do this myself than have you hide a problem that might bite us later down the line. So we also put a bit of money on in trust to fix that issue afterwards. Yeah. So that's a really good point. Highlighting the importance of doing a walkthrough, um, you know, some days like before you go to the notary, especially if your visit and inspection was 30 days in the past and you have a building that has management challenges, super important to know what you're actually closing on because once you've signed, it's much more difficult to handle those kind of problems. Um, the other thing that I will mention as far as the, you know, the tenant's belongings, I think you guys also ended up signing um, just a paper that very clearly stipulates that it's the old owner's responsibility if the tenant comes back uh, for any of her possessions. And that is super important because when you have, you know, a transition of tenants, you really have to like understand where is the old owner's responsibility in terms of did the tenant not, is there overdue rent due to the old owner? Uh, are there personal possessions that are, have been, you know, taken out? If you signed for a vacant unit and the unit's not vacant or they're in the process of vacating, you definitely do not want to be the person who ends up taking that person's belongings, puts putting puts them outside and then faces the lawsuit uh, should some of the stuff get stolen or damaged. And so, you know, the way you guys end up handling it was was textbook perfect, which is to, you know, leave some money and trust the notary to clean up the mess, but also to make sure that the seller is is signing something uh, in, you know, uh, how can I say that you submit along with the tenant's like fact that the tenant is leaving, like the official notice that they're leaving, that you as the new owner are not responsible for their belongings and that you will remove them 
at your own expense with the money left at the notary as of this specific date so that if ever there's any lawsuit, it's coming back against the old person and not against you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely learned a lot. <laughs> and like I said, I documented all of it. So I'll never make these mistakes again. <laughs> and no. it's so easy to forget. And now we have a podcast uh, that there is a reference for anybody who's exactly. looking to educate themselves on that matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Very important. All right. Well, Stephanie, thank you for taking the time to share this experience with people on this specific slice of the due diligence um, and preparing for the notary process of closing on property. Um, If you audience found this useful, uh, please go ahead and share it. Shout out either to Stephanie or myself. Give us some comments. Give us some feedback and um, tune in to our next episode of the mini series, which is going to be talking about everything that happens right after you go to the notary and all the feelings and, uh, you know, surprises that are associated with that. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook. LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.